Hello everyone, this is Sonali Mangal and welcome to another episode of Learn, Educate, Discover. On this podcast, we invite people from different professions on each of our episodes and we ask them a range of questions to try and understand what their job is all about. The goal of this podcast is to try and educate our listeners about as many different kind of jobs as we can so that someone listening to the show can decide does a certain job sound interesting to them and if yes, how do they go about exploring it further. Now on today's episode, we are going to be talking about how you can prepare for data science interviews in tech. And what makes today's discussion really interesting and different is that we have not one, but two guests on today's episode. So our first guest today is Nick Singh. Nick is the author of the book, Ace the Data Science Interview, which as the title suggests, it's really all about data science interview prep. Nick has himself worked as a data scientist and software engineer at companies like Google, Facebook, and Microsoft. So he brings a ton of experience with him. He's written a book on this topic. So as you'll see in the discussion, he talks a lot about the candidate's perspective in terms of how you should be thinking about the interview and how best to prepare for them. Our second guest today is Roy Keyes. And Roy is the author of the book, Hiring Data Scientists and Machine Learning Engineers. So Roy has worked as a data science manager in various startups for over a decade. And he brings a lot of the hiring manager's perspective in terms of what he looks for when he's interviewing data science candidates. What are some of the common mistakes that he sees candidates make? What are some things that really jump out at him when he looks at a resume? So I think today's discussion is going to be really helpful because you're going to see both the candidate point of view as well as the hiring manager point of view and how the two sides of the table think about the same question. So I hope you find today's discussion helpful. A few quick housekeeping notes before we get into the discussion. The first is one of the formats that I'm exploring is doing live podcast recordings where listeners can actually join the live podcast recording and listen to the discussion. And towards the end, they can ask their questions directly to the speaker. So as an example, let's say that we have an upcoming discussion with a product leaders in some company in tech then there's a way for you to express your interest in joining that discussion. And then when the recording is happening, you can actually join and then ask your questions directly. So I would love to learn about whether something like this would be interesting to you. So please do let me know. This will help me assess whether it's worth doing or not. So let me know by tweeting at us at LED underscore curator. That's LED underscore C-U-R-A-T-O-R. Or you can email us at hello at learneducatediscover.com. So either way, let me know if you'd be interested or not. And of course, if you find today's episode helpful, please share it with others. That's really the best way to say thank you. The more people listen to the episode, the more people learn about LED. It really, really helps. So please go ahead and share if you find today's discussion helpful. And with that, Let's now get into the discussion with Nick and Roy. 
Joy and Nick, hello, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having us. Thanks, Sonali. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for making the time. And I'm really excited about this particular episode. As both of you know, we are going to be talking about data science recruiting, both the application process as well as how to prepare for interviews. I think what makes this episode really special is that we have two people, a hiring manager who can speak to what a hiring manager looks for, and then Nick who can speak to the candidate perspective. So to kick things off, why don't both of you give us a quick intro to yourselves? My name's Nick Singh. I'm the co-author of Ace the Data Science Interview. I've previously worked at Microsoft, Google, and Facebook in a variety of data science and software engineering roles. And these days, I'm all about helping people land data science jobs and prepare for the technical interview. Awesome. Thank you, Nick. And uh, Roy, what about you? So my name is Roy Keyes. Um, I've been doing data science work for about a decade now and almost all with startups. So on the smaller side of things, um, last year I put out a book called Hiring Data Scientists and Machine Learning Engineers uh, aimed at fellow managers who are trying to hire for these data roles. Um, about half of my career has been spent as uh, a manager leading teams doing data science, machine learning stuff. And, uh, you know, I've looked at thousands and thousands of resumes and, uh, and of that hired a handful of people. There are a lot of applicants. That's one of the big things. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, tag teaming with Nick, we can give you some interesting and good advice. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. And it, it looks to me as if both of you have known each other for a while. Is that, is that correct? We met through the interwebs just because I was like, yo, I read your book and it helped formulate some of the ideas and tips because in, in essence, I'm trying to beat Roy's book in the sense that Roy's is all about how do we hire better. And I'm like, yo, how do we get people hired? So Roy's book was something I had read in the past mm. before writing my own. Um, so when my book came out, I definitely had to reach out to Roy to thank him. And, you know, we had a good nerding out because in yeah. some senses we're on the other opposite sides of the table. But yeah, I, I had, I, I don't see it as uh, adversarial at all, but, but I had seen his book too. So when he contacted me, I, I knew exactly uh, uh, who he was and what he was talking about. And, um, you know, my book is, is basically about how to make your process effective and efficient to hire the best people for, for your needs. And, uh, you know, you, you want people to come in prepared. You want people to come in uh, and be able to explain who they are quickly and succinctly. And, uh, you know, I'd much rather have prepared candidates than unprepared candidates, even if they're strong, because it, it's just so hard to uh, figure out, you know, who you should be hiring. And, and I think it's, it's, uh, so it's really been good to talk to Nick also, because I've been self-publishing uh, books. I'm, I'm working on some other books right now about deep learning and uh, so that, that was also sort of a natural thing for, for us to uh, kind of get to know each mm -hmm. other and, and uh, talk shop. Yeah, yeah, sure. that's pretty amazing. And it kind of shows you the power of putting your work out there, right? So we'll, we'll get to some of that a little bit later in the discussion. But I want to start things with talking about the initial application process. And as both of you have hinted at this already, the resume is sort of like one of the things that candidates stress out a lot about how do I put together a good data science resume. So if you could tell us a little bit about what are the key elements that candidates should think about. And I'm using the word data science as sort of a little bit of an umbrella term. We know that in tech, there could be different types of data science roles. So if you want to contextualize, 
please feel free to do that. Sure. Cool. I, I'll, I'll talk real, really yeah, quickly go for it, Roy. about the uh, kind of the landscape of the different roles that are in the data, data science world. Uh, I, I think the right now, probably the big divides are around sort of analysis on one side and analytics and then, and then machine learning on the other side. Now, there's a lot of people who do both of those things, and you need uh, analysis around your machine learning, and sometimes you're doing machine learning to help your analysis and all these kind of things. But the roles that we're seeing a lot it is kind of people that are working on the analytics, whether that they're called data scientists, they might be called product analysts or analysts. Um, and then on the machine learning side, they might be called data scientists, but they might be called machine learning engineers or machine learning researchers or machine learning modelers. There's a bunch of different titles. Um, and, and they just kind of do different things. But then I'd say also in there, there are some people that are more closer to data engineers. Those are people who are helping to, uh, get the data, move the data, put it where it needs to be, make it available. And, uh, and then there's closer, close to that is there's a, there's a new title that's come out, um, that it's getting very popular called analytics engineers. And, uh, I know people will yell at me for saying this, but, uh, mm -hmm. one of the main things they're focused on is like putting dashboards and stuff into production. And so, you know, depending on what role a company is advertising, which they may be very bad at actually advertising and making it clear what the role is, you, you know, if, if, if it says analytics engineer, hopefully that, that is a specific thing. If it just says data scientist and it says, you know, you need to know, uh, how to do power BI and you also need to know how to do TensorFlow and PyTorch for deep learning, like, you know, this, they probably don't know what they're doing, but that also, you know, you, you need probably a pretty general approach. Mm, yeah. So. Nick, did you want to add something to that? Right. No, I, I agree. There's so many different data roles, but I think point uh, to your first question of like, well, what, what does that actually look like for the resume? I think that regardless of the role, a lot of the resume tips still stay the same. Later on, when we talk about the technical interview part, I think that's where it starts to really differentiate. But yeah. the for the resume... I think that like people have too long of a resume. So we got to keep it for one to one page if it's, you know, under 10, 10 years of experience. And I think another thing that people get wrong, regardless of the role, is they put too much fluff or too many details that drown out their best content. Mm. So it's so easy to put in things like, oh, look at me, I'm trilingual. I speak Spanish, Hindi, and English. And it's like, well, aren't all these data jobs in English, you know? And I mean, that's such a small thing to nitpick. But when across a one-page resume, you keep putting extra information that doesn't really matter, and it drowns out the relevant project, the relevant work experience, the relevant tech stack you have, because you're just putting in synonyms and, you know, uh, objective or summary at the top that's very vague and that just says you're a hardworking data person looking for their next challenge, you know, that's just fluff. Right. So I think those are some of the big things that I've seen from reviewing a lot of different resumes of things people could do a lot better in regardless of the role mm -hmm. they're learning for data. I, I think uh, there are, you know, there are some kind of extreme examples of roles that might, you know, if you're going to be a machine learning researcher, I expect to see where your PhD is from and all your publications listed or something like that. Right. Right. Uh, that's probably a longer, a longer thing, you know, versus if you're in, if you're trying to look for an internship job somewhere and, you know, you're not going to have a lot of experience. So you don't really expect that. The things that we're looking for is, is this person reasonably in the right ballpark for basic skills? Uh, are they 
does it seem like they're someone who's been able to work hard and, you know, I don't know if you can say you can see they're smart from their resume or something, but also um, often just, is there something about them that stands out? Mm. So uh, I, I think like what Nick said, you know, you, you can easily add too much fluff. And uh, I would say to me, the, the, the most important thing is that you put your stuff that makes you look solid as you're emphasizing that as much as possible. Um, you know, and, and who knows, you know, maybe, maybe Nick applies for a job that's uh, focused on natural language processing for, uh, you know, Hindi uh, and Spanish stuff. And so it's perfect that it says that sure. he can do that. But, you know, so in some sense, you also want to think about tailoring a little bit, depending on, on the actual role that you're looking yeah. for. So, so I would, for example, have different resumes, uh, for kind of the industries that I'm working in. So I've, in, in the past, I've worked in different different places. I've worked in stuff that was, uh, I've worked in food delivery. So, you know, that one is all about more logistics oriented stuff. I've also worked in medical worlds. So it's like, if I'm applying to a role in those different areas, I'll emphasize different parts of my experience because uh, I, I think one thing, the big, the biggest problem on the hiring side that I face, and it, and it's the same problem that, or it's like the flip side of the problem that the candidates are having is that there's just so much competition. There's just so many people going for these roles right now. And so, you know, I want to be able to look for people that all kind of look the same, but, oh, you know, if I'm in healthcare and so this person has some background that at least, you know, maybe will help them understand and get up to speed more quickly because they've you know, worked in some sort of healthcare or healthcare adjacent right. space. Right. So there's things like that that I think are important to emphasize if if it's going to help you. Yeah, makes sense. So just two follow-up questions there. So the first is, you mentioned how you're looking for, you know, do they have the basic skills? Are they smart? Can they work hard? And then is there anything about them that really stands out? So could you perhaps share an example of what a strong resume bullet point looks like? So I, I think that for a lot of these roles, like I said, there are many, many candidates and a lot of them look very similar. They've got, you know, this same types of degrees. Uh, they've done the same types of projects, especially projects for class. And so, you know, I want to see if I'm looking at the resume, I, you know, not, not everybody goes to Harvard or Stanford or MIT or something like that, but uh, you know, I'd like to see something that sticks out and we can talk about school stuff later and what that means. Uh, I, I have a, I'll take one, one start side route here for a second, which is that my advice to hiring people is much different than my advice to people that are trying to get hired because most of the people that are hiring people won't follow my advice anyway. <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, I, I want to, if I see that someone has done something that's interesting to me, like a very interesting project, but especially if there's sort of some kind of evidence around it that it's good. So, um, you know, if you if you built something and it was featured on Reddit or something like that, you know, that, that's a little bit more interesting to me than if you just did it and it was for a class. If you did something and, uh, you know, you contributed to an open source project that's that's known and, and you know, those um, the maintainers of that project are, are, and they've looked at your stuff and accepted it. So there's kind of this bit of validation that's happening. And, mm. and I like to see that stuff. Mm. The, the main things are, are sort of 
highlighting things that are above just the basic level qualifications that probably everyone is going to have. You know, everybody, if they're, if they're doing a role uh, that's like machine learning, for example, everybody's going to list that they know Python. Everybody's going to list that they know scikit-learn and, and one of the deep learning frame, frameworks like TensorFlow or PyTorch. The question is, you know, what, what are you doing that's going to jump out to say, you know, not only do I know this, but I've actually used it in some way that um, yeah. I can show off or and, and is maybe a bit different than, than what right. everyone else has already done. Right. Makes sense. So I guess my next question is then a little bit related, which is that let's say a candidate does not have prior industrial experience of working in a data science role. Uh, maybe they've only done projects in class what can they do to make their their application really stand out? Can they do something on their own? Sure, I, I can talk to that because I've helped a lot of people kind of do that because so many people come from so many different backgrounds and might not have the formal credentials and need that kind of extra leverage. So I'm a huge proponent of portfolio projects. So a good portfolio project is kind of making your own experience in the absence of formal work experience. And just as actually Roy had mentioned of like, hey, if something got traction on Reddit or there's a cool demo that, you know, actually worked or your GitHub repository got a lot of stars, those are actually worth something. So what I tell candidates is try to make a portfolio project that's somewhat meaty, not with an interesting data set, not something that you would have used in school, not something that everyone's already used, um, you know, some of these standard data sets like the Titanic data set from Kaggle, like forget about those. Ideally, maybe even make it use a data set that's based on your passion. You know, I loved hip hop music growing up. And in college, I made a thing called Rapstock.io, which was fantasy football, but <laughs> for hip hop artists. <laughs> so think of it like you could make your own fantasy label and draft artists. Or another analogy would be a stock market where you could long or short different hip hop artists as a way to kind of show off your taste and show off your predictive abilities that you could predict who was a good artist. So I built this project out. I worked with a bunch of data sets. I put it out into production. I got a bunch of users. And when I talked to hiring managers at growth teams, I was able to show them how I could use data to build product, I was able to use a Spotify API and analyze data and kind of price these different artists. And I think that made a very compelling story in my own experience. And from mentoring a lot of other people, I've been able to see the same thing, that when somebody builds a project on their passion, they build it to completion. So they actually have something to share, a public Tableau dashboard, a real API that's out there in the world, a real GitHub repository that's getting stars. And they make it meaty and they make it relevant to the job and they can explain that to one hiring manager of like, look, look at what I built. Sure, I might not have every credential, but look at how it's relevant to the kind of work you guys are already hiring for. I think it goes a long, long way in standing out. Yeah, yeah. That, I'll, I'll, I'll add to that that, uh, you know, when, when I'm reviewing resumes, like I'm probably not on the sort of first pass going to click on any links or anything on the resume, right? So... If, if you do have that traction, that external validation, whatever that is, like you need to put that in there, right there, so that someone can see it. You know, you need to, you need to state that you had this many users or something like that, or you, um, you, you know, that this was published or, or, you know, something worked like that. 
so th- that's actually a great tip this this actually works for a lot of jobs not just data science where if you can demonstrate your interest interest by doing these side projects it goes a long way uh just a quick follow up on this do you have any tips for how can let's say you know i go and develop this project i put in a lot of effort and energy into it but you know maybe i don't have a community as such or or a following to share this project with what's a good way to try and get that initial feedback from people and and build some sort of traction for my project absolutely so one thing is that now i have an audience but when i'm talking about these tips or that rap shock story this is all way before i had any audiences or anything and there i was building for the reddit the subreddit called r hip hop heads which is all for music lovers mm-hmm. so i think that most people should be able to build something and find a community to share it with because it's reddit and i guarantee you even the most niche hobbies and niche interests <laughs> have a place on the internet so i think um just by the power of the internet reddit forums um facebook groups these are great places to kind of get users get feedback and get interest um and i think that it might be a limiting belief to think oh i don't have a community when it's like yo there's you know 50 facebook pages for the most niche hobbies and interests yeah and that's enough to get your first users and feedback and impact yeah 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 so all right so let's say i've put together my resume i have my project and i have a strong application i'm ready to now apply to companies but maybe there's a dream company that i really want to get a job at but i don't know anyone who can refer me do you have any tips for how i can still you know have a strong chance for actually getting shortlisted right and i'd be curious to hear Roy's take on it but i always advocate people to send cold emails which is kind of an opposition to a warm introduction so if you really don't know anybody you can kind of guess the hiring manager recruiter's email address and plus you have linkedin so you can always send them a linkedin dm too but i'm a big fan of email cuz i can make it a little bit longer and i could put in like a link and an image or a gif or something to kind of stand out and actually get noticed in a way that on linkedin i can't really do that but the point is that i think by looking up the relevant hiring manager for the team you want to join sending them a compelling pitch that says here's my experience here's what i built here's what your team's hiring for and here's why i'm a good fit and doing that in probably 100 150 words you know across 6 7 sentences you know which 6 7 short sentences so it's kind of easy to look at it goes a long long way and actually i got my last job at a startup called safegraph a geospatial analytics startup thanks to sending the ceo a cold email that's how i got the interview process started and i hired that company's first intern because they sent me a cold email. Okay. So, cold emailing really has worked in my experience and with the people I've coached and of course, you know, if your dreams at Google and you don't have the credentials, you can't just, you know, cold email your way to Google, but at a lot of smaller companies especially where they're hurting for talent and they're looking for someone who's actually passionate about the role, who's done the research on what the company does and the position is looking for and is able to convey that briefly in 6 7 sentences. it goes a long way and you might not even need that referral i i agree with that i think that it's uh for a lot of people for myself it feels weird very weird to cold email someone like that uh i have done it before i've also done it uh via twitter for example if they have someone has open dms usually if it's you know someone that especially if you've interacted with them otherwise 
you know, say like, like on Twitter and some sort of public forum and, and, you know, you can kind of say, Hey, Hey, this is who I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, on the, on the hiring side, I, I tell people that if you're contacted like that, you need, you still need to make sure you're putting people through the same process you put everyone else through. Uh, maybe it gets them to the next stage, but you know, uh, you don't want to bias yourself because someone, just because someone's sticking out like that or, or, or whatever. I mean, if you're hiring people for a sales role, maybe it's different because that's <laughs> yeah. what salespeople do. But, right. uh, you know, for the, for the typical one, uh, a lot of it, you, you don't, you don't want to respond in a way differently than you, you otherwise would as far as, uh, you know, uh, their hiring likelihood, but maybe, maybe you, you bump them on to the next round when, uh, past the sort of resume screen stage, if they, if they seem reasonable. Um, I've definitely done that at different points. Um, and, and I, I think that the other kind of version of that is, is just asking the people, you know, Hey, do any of you know anyone at that company? And, and sometimes that helps. And, uh, you know, sometimes you'll get useful info. Maybe the info is a, Oh, we're actually not hiring or that actually has been filled or something like that. But, but oftentimes it'll get you somewhere, but not always. Sometimes the cold, the cold application is, is the way to go and, and, and still get you where you want to be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then one last question on the, on the initial application process, I think in data science, this is, this has at least been in my experience where, where I've seen that in tech, the quality of a data science role can vary quite a bit. So there are certain teams where data scientists are highly empowered and they're driving a lot of insights work, which that can then in turn influence product and what shape it ends up taking. And then there are other teams where, you know, perhaps it's not as empowered. So as a candidate who's not yet part of a team or not, you know, perhaps even outside the company, do you recommend any ways that a candidate can evaluate if this is a good data science opportunity? Uh, I think that's a difficult one. Uh, maybe I should start with by saying, if you do have any of those contacts that can give you some inside information, you know, you get some amount of insight, um, take everything with a grain of salt, obviously. But I, I think for a lot of the candidates I talk to, and, and Nick can tell me what he thinks that, you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, you, you kind of want to... <laughs> look at every available opportunity and you may not have that chance to really try to uh, discriminate between what's like the good role and what's the bad role. And, you know, for a lot of people, I I think the advice that I would give them and other people I know give them is, is if, if there's a company that you like, and if there's a team that you like, but you can't get quite there or whatever, uh, you know, you, you may want to go in and, and then try to try to transfer or something later because, you know that then your foot is really in the door, right? Yeah, no, it's 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 a tough tough ask to figure out is this team worth joining or not. I think one thing that I've seen is first at some level we're all human, so do I like the people I'm interviewing with? You know, that's a good way to read on it. Second thing that I've seen is just to get a, a higher level of like how is this organization doing? Um, enough companies have technical blogs or give talks at conferences, but that's one way for you to kind of realize like hmm. Do I enjoy this work? You know, because people talk about the technical work. And if you find their blog post boring or you're like, yo, I don't think I could see myself working on these kind of challenges, mm-hmm. that's a good signal. Like maybe you're not a good fit for the organization and then vice versa. It's like, yo, 
I could spend all day thinking about how do I make trips, you know, match people, riders to drivers and like optimize trips. And I love geospatial data. Maybe working at Uber is a great fit. And of course, it's still hard to get a read on team to team, but at least you have some more faith on Uber data science as a whole, if you like the blog and okay. geospatial as a whole and transportation. I, I tell most candidates that are, you know, people that are looking that not applying to my roles or something, but uh, kind of to evaluate it from the opposite end, which is like, is this a, do, do you not like what they're doing? Does this feel, does something feel sketchy about what's going on, you know? And, and those are the ones that you, you want to reject, but maybe you should be open to almost everything else that seems reasonable. Just because, yeah. you know, a lot of competition, that, that's the main thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, very different if you're, you know, a very senior senior candidate and uh, and then, you know, the uh, the whole thing is a kind of a different ball game. Of course, yeah. And then your considerations would be vastly different at that point. Um, all right. So then let's say now you have your interview and you're in the phase of preparing for your interview. What are the key elements or core elements that candidates should be preparing for? I think some of the major topics um, besides the behavioral interview, but let's let's should we let's start with technical. Some of the major topics for technical would include um, coding, often in Python with pandas or R, depending on your shop. SQL, some basic prob stat knowledge, a little bit of ML knowledge, and then sometimes for more product data science roles, which are kind of working on product analytics, you'd want to have some product sense or business sense practice as well. So those, that's kind of how I see the main interview breakdown. Um, did I miss anything, Roy? I think that covers a lot. I think one, uh, another big area though might be uh, sort of around, let's say software development and and sort of uh, like ML ops as they'd call it. So stuff around how do you, how does a system work that, you know, when you put this into production or how would you design one or something or just, I think for a lot of roles, they want to know if you have experience working in an environment where other people are depending on what you're building. This is where like my complete lack of data science interviews is going to show. But um, did I get it? Did I get the buckets right? So there's behavioral interviews. Then there is a big coding piece, and then within coding, there you know all the different pieces like ML and Python, etc. And then some sort of like just problem solving capability and how you interface with other functions. I, I think I would add to that, uh, you know, just around analysis and working with data. Mm. So, you know, I, I definitely give candidates uh, just a one, one part of the technical assessment will be take this raw data and then answer questions about it that, uh, you know, that I'm giving them the questions and, and that's, you know, that's one of the cores of pretty much all this data work is being able to uh, to uh, take dirty data, especially and and then manipulate it, uh, clean it up so that you can then answer, uh, you know, business related questions or reuse that that data to make uh, data driven solutions for things. Makes sense. So I think if you could just maybe give us a few things around what are the key things that you're looking for in the coding piece of the interview? Roy, I would love to hear that. Sure. So um, 
I'll say in, in the early days of data science, I definitely did multiple interviews that were really aimed at software developers. And they were about sort of the algorithms and data structures that computer science majors learn in school and stuff. But they really had very little overlap with data science work. So typically the, the coding stuff like uh, uh, assessments that I would give to people are, are much more in line with the kind of work that data scientists would be doing. Now, now, some data scientists are writing code on big systems that need you know, really good software development practices and, and all these things. But a lot of time, what data scientists and machine learning people are doing is more code around cleaning up data and gluing things together. And it's a little bit different. Uh, so those, you know, it's, it's typically not the things that you'd, you'd see in like leak code or uh, the, the kinds of stuff that a lot of software developer candidates are, are using as uh, to practice with. Now that said, I do know a lot of people, especially on the machine learning engineering side, that when they go in for interviews, they do hit these sort of leak code questions. So if if you're doing if you have the word engineer in that title, you probably do want to focus on more of those. But uh, for the kind of stuff I do, you know, I want to know that they know how to use the use their tool. I, I mostly work in Python to do the, the kinds of tasks, which which hmm. often are taking a bunch of data, whether it's text or whatever, and uh, munging it as one of the terms we like to use to, to get clean it up, to make it available to use. And, you know, I, and I also see that as one of the one of the sort of powers of data scientists over especially old school uh, data analysts or business analysts is that they know how to program and they know how to deal with data formats and things like that. Uh, that are not necessarily that the tools that you have can't just do it out of the box where you push a button. So instead, the the data scientists can get their hands dirty with with code to get done what they need done. Yeah, I think that uh, Roy's right that this traditional data structure and algorithm questions might not be the most relevant to data to work, but definitely some of the easier ones around manipulating arrays or strings. Um, I still think are pretty fair game because it just shows that you know how to loop or, you know, your conditional logic. Um, and I think these are, you know, even if you're not doing hardcore programming, these are some basic concepts that can help test your problem solving skills and basic competency in coding. So I, I still favor those kind of questions. Um, but you're right that um, instead of these more Python, sorry, data structure questions, I do think that asking SQL questions makes a lot of sense, especially for so many roles that need SQL that sometimes get skipped in school, right? Everyone's talking about modeling this and that. And then we forget, okay, a lot of the people with the title data science are actually pulling lots of data via SQL, not Spark, not some fancy other tools. Um, they're just writing plain old SQL queries all day. And, you know, they by, on paper, they're, job says data science, but you know, it's probably what we would have called data analyst or business intelligence back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of how the industry's evolved and people want to tack onto the trend. So that's why it's now yeah. labeled. I, as I've never, uh, I've never assessed people's SQL skills for the, for the roles I've hired for. Um, that said, I expect them all to be able to do SQL. Yeah. Whether, whether, whether because they need to learn it, but even if you're doing, you know, machine learning or whatever, oftentimes you'll have to pull that data in the beginning, in the explain, uh, exploratory phases from from a database using SQL. 
uh, before you might have, you know, nice pipelines, especially built by uh, someone else, a different role. But I, I still expect that. And I mean, may, maybe an, a good thing to say, which is related to an earlier point I made, which is just that just because stuff is not directly related to the actual role doesn't mean that's doesn't mean you won't see it in the interview. So in, in that sense, uh, I, I think there are a lot of these skills and Nick covers these in, in, uh, in their book that are the ones that you should review well enough in case it comes up. So no matter what the role is, if there's any data related, you should be, uh, you should brush up on your SQL. You know, you probably do want to do some of those leak coding ones, even though I don't, I don't use that kind of stuff. I mean, maybe the sort of lowest level ones that are, that are kind of more related to this, the kind of things you would see, but you know, it, it's kind of like prepare for the reality out there versus prepare for uh, what people should be doing when they're trying to hire, we'll say. Would you recommend any resources that candidates can use to prepare for the coding portion? I personally recommend Ace the Data Science Interview, <laughs> co-written by Nick Singh. Yeah, but, but I, I, I like my book for coding, but definitely a big part of coding is actually coding and my book's a book. You can't code the book, but... I think Leak Code is kind of the big winner here, and Hacker Rank is there too. So I think um, for coding, it's totally reasonable to be practicing on those platforms. But we also put coding questions in our book as well. Yeah, yeah, and I'll definitely yeah, yeah. link to the book. Uh, I think especially if you're going to do any roles that are, like I said before, that have like the word engineer on them, you know, something like Leak Code and going in there and just practicing and make sure you're thinking about that. And then uh, the other part I would say is. If you have especially open source projects or whatever it is, like go in and review your own code and make sure you understand what you did, because that's the you know, kind of stuff you do. And, and that there's a strong possibility that someone would ask you about that, especially public code that you put out there. Yeah, 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 definitely. So you also mentioned behavioral questions. And interestingly enough, I polled a few people on what questions they have. And this came up as one of the questions that people actually aren't sure whether they'll be asked behavioral questions or not it's so it sounds like they are so what exactly is is a candidate being tested for in in the behavioral section of the interview i i personally i have a strong opinion about behavioral questions i actually think they're not very good questions in general i don't think it's a good technique uh but you know you it is something that that you'll get for a lot of roles i mean when i've done stuff like that i literally have done a search for common behavioral interview questions to see what I should be preparing for. Um, you know, and then there's the typical ones, of course, like, you know, tell me about a time when you had a conflict with a coworker and, and how you resolved that. And when I, I've done interviews for manager roles, you know, it's much harder to assess manager roles with an online quiz. You know, that doesn't really <laughs> exist in the same way as with say coding or something. And so for those, you know, the way I'd approach it is uh, compile as big of a list of questions. And you can find some of these in Nick's book, I believe, uh, that are related to behavioral interview questions and, and basically then sit down and practice your answers. I mean, it is, uh, I, I think that it would, it seems a little bit weird uh, because, you know, they're asking you what happened in this and well, that happens. So you should be able to tell them. But on the other hand, you know, you want to be able to give very clear 
succinct answers to these kind of questions. And so you really want to practice them and, and if possible, uh, practice them with, with, with a, with a buddy so that someone can ask you, pro mm. you know, probe your answers and try to help you craft them a little bit better. Right. Right. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a ton of sense. Practice makes perfect. And it's easy to say like, man, behavioral interviews are like fluffy bullshit or it's like, yo, it's about me. You know, I should be able to wing it, but practicing in the mirror or practicing with a friend really matters. And I think, I guess some of this might be considered the behavioral interview, but um, the first question that usually people ask is like, tell me about yourself. And I've seen so many smart, capable data scientists mess this up <laughs> and they ramble and they ramble or they tell a story that's not really relevant to the job. And then I have to ask them like, yo, you forgot these details that make you a really good fit for the job. Cause they, they tell one story for every kind of job, regardless of the company they're trying to interview for. So I think practice makes perfect. And I think that being a little bit more critical and actually techies can write this off like, oh, come on, it's just about you. But, you know, salespeople don't, you know, salespeople will really uh, go hard on these kind of pitches on their elevator pitch on this and that. But techies won't do that. And I think that that first question, tell me about yourself, sets the tone for the rest of the interview. Even if you're doing a technical assessment, how you start those first two minutes really colors the mind of the interviewer so it's like yeah work and, on that and and i guess i'd also add you know this is probably just a psychology thing on my own end but like if someone comes in and they're too polished then i start to be a little skeptical or something right <laughs> so it's like you know you you want to practice it so you give some a, a a natural delivery to these answers yeah uh you know and, and i i would like to claim now i would i would i'm really curious to hear your point on this roy so i've heard of that kind of criticism like oh what if i'm like too practice and i'm like yo like if i'm giving you feedback like unless you're an actor or like really that good we all have so much room to improve on how we pitch ourselves and talk about ourselves or answers in these questions because face it or you know like it or not we're not used to talking about ourselves so I've always, I've never felt someone like get too polished. I think maybe one in a hundred, but like they're usually not even interviewing, you know, they're almost like selling me. Um, but for the average candidate, I think probably reading this or hearing this, probably you would want to err on the side of preparing more. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think that that's, that is probably true that for the, the, the typical candidate, they're not going to be on the other side. Uh, I and, guess I, I'd say I, I can add my little, quick editorial about behavioral questions. The reason I don't like them is because I feel like they are mostly useful for sort of true negative uh, responses. Uh, and by that, what I mean is like, if, if you say, you know, tell me about a time you had a conflict with a coworker, with a coworker and, and the response is, well, you know, I punched that guy and uh, you know, I showed him Right. And you're like, okay, that's, that, that's, nobody's going to make that up. And it's a bad answer. Right. Uh, you know, versus on the other hand, uh, like I might be able to tell you about the time that I got into a big conflict with a coworker. And in the end, it was like, I just pointed out that this is exactly what his, his wife had been saying the last time, you know, in public about him. And it's like, oh, by the way, I just made that whole thing up. Right. And, uh, you know, it's like people can easily give you sort of false positives. 
Uh, but there's also a lot of false negatives because a lot of times, especially if people are unprepared, I think, you know, they, they just can't think of something relevant. So whatever they think of, they either can't remember a perfect scenario to explain that, you know, actually did happen or what they do remember just, you know, it doesn't sound very good and they don't sound like they got it together very well. And uh, so to me, you know, the only really, it's, it's hard to tell like, oh, was this a, was it, was it a false positive? Was it a true positive? Was it a, a false negative? And the only one you can really count on is like the true negative where, you know, if somebody says something and they say it in a way that they think is good and you're, you know, clearly this is a bad thing, <laughs> then, yeah. you know, maybe that's a good signal. But uh, that said, you know, it's a very popular technique because it's kind of based on this sense of your past behavior, behavior will predict your future behavior. Uh, instead, I like to ask questions more around, more around the hypothetical scenarios of what would you do in this case? But, but even more specifically, I like to ask, you know, what's your philosophy with dealing with this type of situation? Mm -hmm. And so just one quick follow up on this, which is that so yes, candidates should definitely try and find a list of questions and practice yes. to the extent they can. But what exactly is the interviewer trying to figure out? And what I'm trying to ask is, so as as a product manager, for example, I can talk to that, that one of the things we can, and we can debate that, you know, is behavioral question really the right way to test this? But we know, like as a, as a candidate, I know that they probably want to know what my problem solving skills are. They probably want to know how right. well I work with other people. They probably want to know, am I a good leader? And so I have to try and bring out those qualities. Like that's what my answer should be anchoring around. So right. from a data scientist perspective, if you're asking me, how do you resolve a conflict? What exactly are they trying to, to see? It's a little bit unclear to me that you can get good information around, especially around resolving a conflict. And, and for the reasons I said, you know, if, if someone knows what the talking points are from whatever, you know, kind of professional stuff, it, it's hard to know if they're just making it up or, or not. Mm -hmm. um, to me, I, I think, you know, you, you want people that will work well on the team. And a lot of people, especially coming out of school or whatnot, they don't, they don't really understand how important that is. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I think a lot of, for most of the stuff I've done, I have not explicitly tried to suss out, is this person a, a good team worker? I don't, I don't like this kind of answer for me, but you know, I, I feel like a lot of it is kind of the feel people get. Mm. And um, the way I recommend, like in my book, I talk about, there's like things you want to explicitly assess for. And then there are other things that you kind of want to comprehensively assess for. Another big one that goes in there that we haven't touched on is, is sort of communication skills. And for the data science side, you know, it's, it's a lot about like communicating technical concepts, right. uh, especially to, you know, to technical audiences and less technical audiences. But I, I think that kind of all goes together. So, uh, you know, when, when I do hiring and I, I am involving a, a team of people, um, even if I'm running the process and, you know, so I will ask those people all for feedback, you know, did you get any sense around, you know, some of these things like that this, were there any red flags to you around behavioral stuff? Uh, because that's, you know, from a manager's side point of view, it's like th those are the worst kind of problems to deal with is yeah. when, when people have interpersonal issues uh, within the team, for example. But on the other hand, I think it's very, very hard to screen for. Yeah. 
So that's a, that's a really not a sort of fulfilling answer or whatever, but, I, but I, I think it's just incredibly difficult. It helps. And it's, it's kind of like the interview just kind of getting a feel for you as a person, um, which, you know, is obviously important in a work environment. Right. Um, so can either of you share examples of when a candidate really blew you away in the interview process? I like agency where it's just like, oh, I just did this stuff on my own because it's my hobby. It's my interest because then that makes me realize like, oh, this person is going to level up and take initiatives and I don't even have to tell them to do these things. And that's because I'm fundamentally lazy as a hiring manager, as a coworker. I'm just like, yo, I don't want to give you instructions. I just want you to do stuff on your own. And so when folks have a track record of building their own businesses, making their own side projects, taking Coursera classes for fun, reading books in the field just to stay up to date, reading Hacker News, I, I find these, and, and they have a, some level of baseline technical skills, I find that these people can level up very fit quickly and, uh, you know, they, they give a shit. And uh, sometimes at these smaller companies, that's what really matters. So when I find agency and a little bit of passion, about the domain or the company, it really wins me over. Yeah. I have to agree with that. that. That's that's a good thing that that I, I kind of had forgotten about, which is especially in the startup world, which is where I've uh, you know been been my whole career. When I see people that you know, they all kind of have the same background nowadays. You see a lot of people in the data science world that have an undergrad and some sort of STEM topic, and then they'll have maybe a master's degree, especially in data science, analytics, machine learning, whatever. But then I see someone who on their resume, it says something where they're, it shows me that they are a sort of an entrepreneur in the broad sense of like, they, they like to go out and just build stuff and, and learn stuff on their own. Like I, I'm in some ways more excited about someone who says, well, I did this project in totally on my own around, you know, reinforcement learning or something. Not, that's not what I do. I've never done that at work, but it's also not something they probably learned in their classes, you know, and it was like they, they did these things on their own or, you know, they put out, the, you know, their own little apps or whatever. And that does get me kind of excited about, you know, is this a super self-starting person? And, you know, like Nick said, the, the, it is the dream of every manager is to have a team of people they don't need to manage. That's the perfect candidate. Yeah. Um, what are some common mistakes that you've seen candidates make during the interview process? Sadly, one of the common mistakes I've seen is people cheating on their assessments. Okay. Yeah, that is definitely. This, okay. this is, yeah, do not cheat. I, it, it, it kind of blew me away. You know, I was not expecting this when I started giving people sort of these automated assessments. Uh, you know, it's sort of along the lines of leak code or whatever that, uh, but do it for data science related content and, uh, uh, you know, have a whole philosophy of what should be included in that and how to make it the best possible experience. But, uh, when I started doing that and I started seeing people who had clearly copy pasted stuff from elsewhere or had, uh, help from some source. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know why people would do that. It's one of those things you think, well, logically, what if you cheated then and then you get on the job and you can't actually do this stuff, you know, what are you going to do then? Uh, but it, it, I think for some people, it's just too easy to just, you know, cheat. And I, I think it's just, it's not going to help you in the long run. Uh, and I feel crazy for even having to say that because it's, it, it seems very obvious 
uh, that for like these technical skills, uh, it, it, it won't work like that. But, um, so don't cheat, please. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that goes without saying, I mean, that's probably like a, a, sh a straight way to get, um, rejected. Anything yes. else? Um, I, I think that sometimes, you know, people will focus on things that aren't relevant, maybe, when they talk about themselves. Uh, it could even be the projects they're on, you know, uh, that can be a that can be an issue. Sometimes people just are flustered, but sometimes they're, uh, um, they're just trying to throw everything at you because maybe if, if they're, uh, they're early in their career and they don't have a lot of experience to uh, pull from. Um, I think another problem that, that happens sometimes if you're doing like in-person skills assessment is that sometimes people will, they won't ask for any kind of help, whether they don't know that they could ask for help or they just feel like that will make them look bad or whatever. Uh, and, you know, I always tell people at the beginning of assessment, you know, feel free to ask for as much help as you want et cetera, et cetera, depending on exactly the assessment. But uh, sometimes people will just sit there in silence for, you know, an hour or whatever and do some mm. technical, technical assessment uh, when, and, and, you know, they may have missed some fundamental thing. So at the end, they, uh, you know, they don't, they don't give you uh, a, a good response on the assessment when they could have uh, easily gotten help, but just didn't. And the, the, some of that's personality also, but I think, um, I really do think for the most part, most interviewers are not adversarial and, you know, they will, they want you to succeed. You know, it's, it's hard to find people that have the skills you want and the experience and everything. So when they do find those people, typically the, the people doing the interviews want you to succeed and uh, not, you know, they shouldn't be helping you cheat either. That would be bad too, but you know, uh, it, it's, it's, typically not an adversarial process. Yeah. Yeah, no, following up on that, I think um, you sort of hinted on this and asking questions, but specifically, I'd like to say clarifying questions. Um, so this isn't even just asking for help. This is just like, I gave you a vague problem statement. And one of the good things that you should do is ask clarifying questions. And sometimes people just jump in um, to solving the question. Maybe they didn't know to ask clarifying questions, or maybe they just thought, oh, I'm so smart, I know the answer to this very broad, open-ended, you know, question when they really should have been asking clarifying questions. So that's been the big mistake I've seen. In my talks, I tell people this, and then I give them an open-ended prompt, and then we try to solve it together. And immediately, right after the next slide, people will start giving the answers. And I'm like, wait a second, don't you have questions for me? Didn't we just talk about it 10 seconds ago? that we have this open-ended problem, you should ask me some questions. Um, but it's really fun to see. Um, and hopefully through, you know, I try to hit that, emphasize that in the book a lot. So maybe over time, people will get better at knowing to ask questions and clarifying it. Yeah. yeah. There, there are a lot of bad interviewers too, or, or maybe bad is too strong a word. Maybe we'll say untrained and unpracticed interviewers. And uh, so I, I think that it rests on the candidate's shoulders then to, for, for them helping themselves to try to get as much clarity as possible about uh, not just the question, but also sort of the, the interview itself, you know, oh, 
is it okay if I ask you questions, et cetera, like that, you know, try to, try to put yourself forward and, and ask those kind of things. So you understand the parameters better. Yeah, exactly. And it's good to be on the same page as the interviewer. Um, one of the things I forgot to ask when you mentioned the various sections of the interview is what is the typical weight of these different portions? So the coding piece, the behavioral piece, it's just sort of like problem solving and understanding data. How much weight is given to each of these? So typically I would do a, a technical screen of some sort um, and then an additional technical piece like on an onsite. And so, so in some senses, the technical screen, which, which might involve, you know, data analysis or coding or, or working on some sort of machine problem, I would say it definitely has the most weight. Um, the reason I, you know, might do a, a, you know, a take home or whatever, or that, or these days I mostly do online assessments and then later do an in-person assessment is just to sort of reinforce your understanding of that person's skills. And, and usually the, like the take home would be, I, I tend to give people an assessment over the sort of the most basic skills. And then the onsite might be a little bit more, um, in, a little bit more in depth around one skill set. Uh, and so definitely that, I think the rest of it is, it really depends. Um, I, I would say, or maybe the rest of it is kind of even, but it will depend on the candidate. You know, if a candidate comes in and they're really strong in some area, uh, and depending on the role, you know, you may put more, you, you may weigh that in one way. And then you have another candidate who's really strong in another area and, and those still might end up being about the same. So, so I guess if you were doing some sort of like weighted mathematical summation of this, you know, a lot of those other parts have about even weight, but overall, yeah, I, I would say the, the kind of interviews I do, the, there is a lot of emphasis on the technical stuff. I would say second, uh, and almost even with that is, is people's ability to communicate because, yeah. you know, I've definitely had candidates who could do super well on just sort of the, here's a test, take this technical assessment or, you know, program, write some code to solve this problem. And then, you know, they just had great difficulty communicating what they were doing, what the problem is, whatever else. And, and in a lot of roles, if you're, you know, if you're working on a team, especially with, especially around product, um, you know, or analysis for business people or whatever, or, you know, even R and D where you might be quote locked in the basement, you know, there's, there's still a lot of communication that needs to happen. And so those are the way, the ones that stick out in my mind the most. Yeah. So another question that I've received from candidates is that let's say you don't make it in the, through the interview process, typically you don't get feedback from companies as to what happened, what you could have done better. Do you have any tips for candidates for how they can try and get some feedback? My, I think my tips would be, uh, if you ask, ask as nicely as possible, even though you know you may not be very happy in that uh, moment in time, but ask as nicely as possible. And also, I would be explicit to say, like, I understand if you're not allowed to give me feedback, uh, because a lot of companies actually have the policy that, you know, they don't do feedback. And, uh, you know, sometimes they are explicit about it. Sometimes they're not explicit. But, you know, in the U.S., a lot of companies just have sort of these legal risk minimization 
uh, kind of approaches to this type of thing. So, uh, you know, they, they may just tell the hiring managers and interviewers that they're just absolutely not allowed to give any feedback. Um, you know, that said, like, I, so I, uh, most of my hiring experience has been in startups where I had very low amount of resources to do hiring, but then you still get a ton of candidates for these types of roles. So, you know, 500 to a thousand candidates for a single role. And what that means is that, you know, I might hire one or two people from that round of hiring, but that means that there's, you know, 999 or 998 people that I didn't hire. And maybe a few of those people rejected me, uh, but, you know, the overwhelming majority were people that I rejected in some way, you know, usually at the, the initial screener. Uh, so the, I, so I, I mostly wouldn't give feedback because it's just like, I, I don't, yeah. I couldn't do that. I would, yeah. I would be giving feedback basically every day, all day long. Right. With yeah. those kind of numbers. Yeah. Uh, so it, it really depends, you know, I, I've, I've actually had a, uh, one or two bad experiences related to this as a hiring manager. Once I was giving a talk at a meetup and uh, a person that uh, I don't even know when in our process they were rejected, uh, you know, started basically yelling at me in the middle of okay. the talk I was giving about why didn't you, you know, hire me or something. And, and uh, you know, that that's scary for anybody, yeah. I think, that uh, have that kind of stuff. So, but, you know, on the other hand, then uh, at a different meetup, I had someone come up after I had given a talk and they said, Hey, you know, I'm so-and-so do you remember me? I applied and, and, uh, you know, is there any feedback you can offer me? And I remember that person and, and, you know, told them what I remembered and, and what I thought they, they could work on. But, uh, you know, those were very, very different experiences. Right. And yeah. I much prefer that second one yeah. versus the first of one. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And that's helpful. I mean, essentially you have to make the interviewer feel, that they are they're going to be safe no matter what they say um and yeah and and and, and I, I think you know my book i is aimed at managers that are hiring people but i've also uh suggested it to to people who are interviewing and part of the reason is just to sort of get a look behind the curtains or on the other side of the table or however you want to phrase it and you know i think that it's uh it is very hard being a candidate, but it's also very difficult being a hiring manager. And, uh, you know, almost everyone's been a candidate, but not that many people have been hiring managers. So it's kind of hard to like understand what the difficulties are on the other side. And it, it sounds, uh, you know, like almost artificial or, uh, inhuman, or this is what a robot does when they're just rejecting all these people. But, uh, you know, hiring managers, they don't want to do that. <laughs> they, they want to find the people that they can hire. That's, that's the person that's going to be like the next great team member. And, uh, so it, it's, there's an emotionality to it, at least for me about, you know, it's like, I would love to hire everyone, but you know, I, I simply can't. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. I want to make sure that we try and cover resources. So both of you mentioned some resources for preparing for coding interviews. Do you have any other resources? We, of course, have Nick's book, Ace the Data Science Interview, which we'll link to in the show notes, which can be a great resource for interview prep. Um, any other resources? Uh, I saw one um, just recently that's for people who are doing machine learning, engineering prep, and that's uh, a an online book by Chip Wen, N-G-U-Y-E-N. Uh, and Chip, Chip is a... Uh, I, I think a, a 
professor or researcher at Stanford, and they mm-hmm. uh, but works in the industry a lot. And and so if you look for, I think it's ML Interview Guide or something like that. Okay. Yeah, hers hers is also a pretty good resource for more ML heavy interviews because um, we kind of touch on that. But I mean, that's its own whole field, so it's a good add on. Yeah. Uh, after I, the book. I'd also th- I also think there are uh, and well, this is maybe related to the programming ones earlier, but there's definitely uh, things like for SQL, refreshing yourself on SQL. Like uh, I-, I think there's a lot of good ones at Khan Academy. Hmm. They have stuff around SQL. They have stuff around you know hypothesis testing and a lot of stuff that data scientists might do. Uh, you know, it's not the sort of graduate level heavy stuff, but it- it's really good to refresh yourself on those kind of things. And so what, Khan Academy. Khan Academy does great work across the board, and, and they happen to have some stuff for data science, too. Yeah. What about for behavioral questions? My personal strategy has been to Google common <laughs> behavioral questions. I don't I don't know that there's any specific to data science that I've heard. I cover some of the more data science-y ones in okay. the book. There are things like, um, tell me as a data scientist when you had to like make a decision that went against an engineer or product manager you work with because their role is so cross-functional with these kind of people and they have different personalities. Yeah. And there's a few other ones about like, tell me about a time um, you, you know, you ran a hypothesis test and you still shipped it even though, you know, the data, the data said one thing and you did something else, you know? Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a great question. I mean, it, I, it probably comes down to what do you do when you have a, uh, like a, disagreement with uh, someone who you report to or something like that, right? But it's uh, a very, very common thing in the data science world is that you'll do an analysis and then the stakeholders uh, interpret it in a, in a way that you would see as illegitimate. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, you know, what do you do at that point? And, you know, uh, I mean, one of them is, I guess what Nick is saying is like, oh, do you still do this anyway? You know, ship it or something or, or how do you kind of stop someone? I, I think a lot of the sort of ethics stuff, it's not not the uh, exciting, sexy ethics that you kind of hear about sometimes in, in sort of the data and ML and AI world, but uh, a lot of it is uh, how do you prevent your analysis from being misused by other people? And uh, because a lot of times, you know, if, if you're, for example, analyzing uh, some sort of employees or whatever, um, you know, I used to work in food delivery, so we had a whole giant team of drivers. And, uh, you know, we would we would do some analysis. And then, of course, these operations managers and stuff, they would they would want to jump on that and be like, oh, this person is, uh, you know, they have a bunch of violations or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as an, a data scientist, part of your uh, mandate is to make sure that that's as clearly explained as possible, even though, you know, a lot of times the people who are not data analysts or data scientists or whatever, like they, they don't have the patience to listen to all the caveats that exist. Yeah. Yeah. Any, anything candidates can do to improve their communication and delivery? Apart uh, from I, practice. I, I think so. the more talks and stuff you can give, the better, I think, um, I, I know a lot of people who, um, if they're in a social situation and someone says, oh, what do you do? And, you know, they'll, they'll uh, instead of explaining what they actually do, they'll say something like, oh, I work on computers or something like that, a little bit vague because they don't want to have to explain it. But I actually think that those can be learning experiences. Uh, I'm probably more introverted than a lot of people, so I love talking to people. But 
you know, I think it's really good to practice communicating technical topics to people who don't have the same technical background that you do and just being as clear about that as possible because um, it, it's just a, a skill that you'll use every day in your job, sometimes to a, a, a very large extent, sometimes to a small extent, but um, the core skill there, I think, is being able to read the audience and um, tailor your message to their uh, level of sort of experience under, and understanding and background about the topic that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, both of you. Uh, this was extremely helpful. Anything else you'd like to add before we close the conversation? Buy next book. <laughs> and buy Roy's book, especially if you want that insider look, because um, even candidates can get the insider look from Roy's book on what's happening on the other side of the table, which is super fascinating and helps you get that more foundational understanding of like, yo, how do we get you a job or how do we, I wouldn't say the word game the system, but just try to understand like what incentives are at play and how do we align that. How to work within the system. Exactly. And, and the highlight of my book, uh, I guess to downplay my own part, is that there's uh, five interviews with hiring managers from tech companies, and they're talking about their experiences versus, you know, just my my sort of opinions. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And we'll link to both of your, your books in the show notes. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for talking with us. Take Thanks, Anali. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you aren't already a subscriber of the podcast, please do subscribe. We'll be publishing a lot of other episodes that cover various jobs as well as bring you career advice from seasoned professionals from around the world. You can also subscribe to our newsletter. Just go to our website at learneducatediscover.com. In the newsletter, we share updates on new episodes as well as bring you lots of interesting career resources that we think might help you. You can also email us. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at learneducatediscover.com. If you have any ideas at all on how we can improve the podcast, how we can improve the content, what are some other things that we can add to the website or the newsletter, we would love to hear from you. Simply email us at hello at learneducatediscover.com. You can also tweet at us at led underscore curator. That's at LED underscore curator. All right, I'll see you in the next episode. Until then, bye-bye.